This week we speak with Eva Applebaum. She is the former Director of Digital Communications at Amnesty International and former Head of Digital Marketing Transformation at the BBC. We discuss why every organisation needs a different type of digital transformation, what a digital transformation team is and what role it should play in the wider organisation, overcoming silos of digital skills. We also discuss ethical strategy or a responsible digital strategy, diversity and inclusion in tech and data, her favourite books, mistakes, mentors and much, much more. Enjoy the chat. Three, two, one. Eva Applebaum is an award-winning digital and transformation leader, keynote speaker and consultant. She mentors organizations through change and teaches future leadership skills. She was Amnesty International's first global digital director and the social and digital director for WPP's media agencies in Asia Pacific and later a digital transformation director at the BBC. She consults with organisations such as the British Airways Department for Education and Allianz to support their transformation and future of work activities and help their leaders and employees thrive in the digital age. Alongside her digital leadership and change consulting, she works with serial founder and chairman Felix Villardi at the 2Y3X project, where she coaches agencies through breakthrough plateaus and scale. She is a trustee of ActionAid, where she previously was a member of the Digital Advisor Board. Eva Applebaum, welcome to Innovate. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. That is a really long introduction. <laughs> um, probably the longest one I've ever, I've ever had. But it's um, your career and history is absolutely fascinating. I'm really looking forward to speaking to you. Thank you. I'm, uh, apologies also for that, that it's so long. <laughs> But it's all it, it it's all true. Um, your your career journey has been an absolutely fascinating one. You've spent time at Mercer, the BBC, Amnesty International, ActionAid. You've lived and worked in Singapore. When someone asks you what you do for a living, how do you answer them? Ah, so um, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to admit to you that I'm I'm sort of terrible at that um, because I either I either oversimplify uh, and just something say something that's so so quick and non-specific it doesn't really say anything, or I end up going on for ages and ages and ages and ages until I notice that the person's <laughs> eyes are actually glazing over and they're like, okay, enough already. It was just a switch or looking past you. Right? Yeah, it was just a polite question. <laughs> but um, I would say the most succinct way that I've, I've come up uh, with uh, in order to explain my career is to say that I help businesses and business leaders with technology-triggered change, and that's probably a good all-encompassing sort of uh, sentence for that. But then I would say that if you were to ask me for the long version, it starts with me kind of going back to my early days (laughs) as a pioneer in the 1990s, you know, with during the dot-com boom, and I studied internet and society and Right. Patrick, Patrick. So, um, that's what the eyes glaze. <laughs> go, okay, old woman. Um, but one thing I would say though um, is that you know um, I've kind of I've kind of seen my career as something that's very fluid and organic, and I've I've let it grow and change with me, um, and that's why it's really hard to be um, succinct when I talk about it. But I, but it's also in many ways it's been huge, hugely beneficial in that I've been able to reinvent myself um, as and when I felt that it was time to do so. So maybe having that unspecific way of describing your career is also a benefit. Well, let's take the long winding view before we get into the <laughs> of your background. You get your BA in art history and social cultural anthropology. Then you get your MA in communications. How do those disciplines affect the way that you think about the world and digital transformation with your clients today? Uh, so when you sent me this question, gosh, I really had to think about it because um, I don't think I've ever reflected on that before, um, in depth at least. Uh, and w- the first thing that sort of came to mind is that um, I think that what it gave me was the skill or the, the discipline to be able to really observe and reflect on what's happening um, and to spend time on that and to honor that, um, to sort of listen to what people are saying, but to also consider subtext 
Um, and by doing so, I think that that's given me a mu- a, the ability to practice my work in a much deeper way because I'm not just reacting. I'm not just kind of following set patterns. I'm really going deep into what's happening and thinking about it in, 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 a, in a way that gives me new answers. It gives me new perspectives. Um, I would also say that um, it's really given me an interest in it or, or it, it signals how people centered I am in the work that I do and that what interests me really is people. And if you think about things like, uh, like social cultural anthropology, which had a lot of eth- ethnograph- ethnographic research, this sort of thing, or communications, it really is about people, how we behave, the myriad of ways that we can do things, but also how we make sense of the world. And in a way, that is something that came out in, when you think about art, so much of art is really people trying to make sense of the world and what's going around us and then trying to reflect back to other people Mm. what that is. Mm. Is it life imitating art or art imitating life? (laughs) Well, (laughs) either, Um, I suppose. Sure. Well, you've you've done a lot of work for nonprofits and charities. Someone with your background in history would have earned probably a lot more money in the private sector in your early career. What what attracted you to work in the charity sector? Um, it's again, I don't you know, I don't know if I go into these things um, with the plan. So <laughs> I don't know if I, if I at any point in my, in my career sort of looked and said, if I take this route, I can have more money. If I take this route, I'll feel better about myself. I think I just sort of went where my interests were. But I'm very sure on a subconscious level, there were decisions that I made sort of based on values that were passed on to me through my, through my family, through my background. Um, my, uh, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents were, uh, refugees after the second world war. And my father was actually born in a Red Cross, uh, refugee camp. And, um, they had to kind of make a life for themselves after the second world war with really nothing. And, uh, you know, not, none, neither of my grandparents were educated and they managed to have four children who between them have four PhDs. Um, and I think that I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, that in that I was passed on many kind of deep values that whether they're conscious or not, they're inside me, that there's a deep sense of sort of humanity and empathy and ideas around doing what's right and kind of fighting for what's right or, or being value based in the decisions that you make. Um, no one in my family ever really focused on money or um, achievements in that way. And I, I guess I've absorbed those values in terms of my own mm-hmm. career and how I plan out what I want to do with my life. So let's talk a little bit about Amnesty International. In 2006, you become the Director of Digital Communications for Amnesty International, where you led the newly established digital team and acted as senior leader within the International Secretariat. What did their digital presence look like at the time when you join the role and what was that that experience like ah nathan <laughs> I, I it it is amazing to me actually that we're only that we, you know we're only talking about 14 years ago and uh, I mean, really, it could be 140 years ago. And I think about what it what it actually looked like. Um, we had a, I mean, there was a lot of activity that was going on on the web, um, and uh, it, you know, it, like what we would call, um, I think we called them e campaigning. Then that would have been the terminology that we used. The, but the website that we had was being hand coded. Uh, we didn't have any kind of infrastructure. We didn't even have a, a, a CMS. Uh, mm-hmm. So any change that we needed to make, like daily on the homepage, if you wanted to announce something or put up a, a media report or anything, it had to be hand coded in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were doing some actually really, really innovative uh, and mm-hmm. interesting things around campaigns. So in 2006, when I joined, um, it, there was uh, uh, MySpace was really big. 
Um, it was kind of a um, beginning oh, wow. of... Now you're going back. Yeah, yeah. So um, Facebook was still um, not uh, open to the public. It was still, you, you know, you had to be in certain institutions to have access to I it. I believe you yes, yeah. in institutions, right. Yeah. Um, but there were some really, I mean, there were some really beautiful, creative, interesting things that were happening with, with online and uh, online campaigns, online marketing at that time. Um, we were doing, um, and also some very interesting like crowdsourcing campaigns as well, where we would get people to send in pictures. And with those photos, we would kind of create a map of, you know, where there are child soldiers around the world, this sort of thing. We had a, um, we had a brilliant, uh, video a producer who was producing these micro videos for us around um, violence against women. And I, I mean, there were, there were loads of really fantastic, interesting activities. Um, oh God, flash. We were doing so much in flash. <laughs> God flash. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, remember that. We did a flash. Oh, it was like a flash campaign around sending a flotilla of boats to Guantanamo Bay to mm. uh, try and release prisoners. Um, mm. the, 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 but what, I felt when I came in was that there was a lot of activity going on and none of it was actually strategic. So whilst we were pinging out these things like the flash campaign here and the My, MySpace thing there, what we weren't doing was investing in the kind of robust infrastructure that we were going to need in order to really be able to take advantage of uh, digital channels and um, internet uh, as a means of engaging our uh, supporters but also as a means of fundraising and, and and as a means of creating advocacy so I actually came in and um, asked that we put a stop on all of the beautiful wonderful creative things that we were doing for a period must of have time been I, what was funny was I, I I really I remember sitting in a room with it with all of the different people who were kind of there doing different things and I said it's all wonderful and it's all amazing, but I want you to understand that it's like we're uh, we're putting beautiful uh, paintings in a house that's falling apart, right? And if mm. we don't actually invest in building a solid structure underneath this all, there's no point in having these in in, in, in hanging these paintings mm. up. We've got to we've got to go back to the basics. We've got to build up the infrastructure. We've got to make sure that everything. We've got a limited amount of money and resource also because when you're a charity, you have to work hard sure. for all of the budget that you have. You think about how you know how much work goes into getting supporters, getting that fundraising. You need to spend it wisely, and I felt that it wasn't being spent wisely anymore. It, it, we needed to go back and create, go back to the basics, get the basics right, and then we could go back into innovation. Um I so was I popular? That's a good question. Um, I was totally popular and totally unpopular. Some people left immediately mm. because they said that's not what they wanted to do, um, and some people were absolutely relieved and saw the sense of it. What I would say is that even of the people who left, I think that they understood why, and it made sense to them. And I also was trying to do it in a way that was empathetic and helping them sort of understand the, the rationale behind it rather than just coming in and dictating, you know, what was going to happen mm. in, a, in a way that was going to get their backs up. So I don't necessarily remember any hard feelings mm. for the people who left. I mean, they may remember it differently, but <laughs> possibly, possibly. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, there, there is also something to be said that the kinds of people who work at charities also also do tend to be very conscientious about sure. how budgets are spent in, in charities. So you can make arguments like that. Mm. We'll, we'll talk about your time at the BBC in a moment, but what's your overarching takeaway from your time with Amnesty International and sort of how, how has that experience uh, translated into your time at the BBC and other areas that you've worked subsequently uh, so that that's a good question, Nathan. I think that there's probably two two takeaways from it. Um, the first is that it, what what an organization needs in terms of their strategy, in terms of their innovation, in terms of their digital transformation, whatever whatever you're sort of in there to fix, is never a one size fits all. 
um, and you will go into some places and and look at it and go, it, it, gosh, they need a big injection of creativity and innovation and and just energy. And you'll go into other places and say, this is just unmanaged chaos and what they need is some process and some, some structure and some infrastructure. And probably when I had come into Amnesty, I had come from somewhere that needed more of the creative innovation and landed in Amnesty and realized that they were, you know, overrun with that and what they actually needed was structure. Um, and maybe the learning in terms of my own skills was that I was uh, I was the type of professional who could flex and who could adapt based on what I thought was best for the organization rather than just trying to push through the thing that I wanted to do most or the thing that I enjoyed doing the most. Hmm. Um, oh, sorry. I was going to say that there was another learning though that was kind of interesting. We haven't, we didn't touch on this before, but it was a really hmm. interesting one, which was that it was the first time that I really started to think about what a digital team was and what role was it going to provide in the longer term vis-a-vis other functions in an organization. And um, the reason I say that is because I think there's a period of time when it makes a lot of sense to have a digital team, and that's when you are trying to first get the right um, structures in place, the right processes, the uh, the right tech that you need and everything else. But then there becomes a time where you go, why do we need a digital team with people running digital campaigns when we already have a campaigning team that's just Mm -hmm. running campaigns? Why do we have tech people in a digital team when we've got a really robust tech team? Mm -hmm. Why do we have digital editors when we have an editorial team, et cetera? And it was the first time that I started to realize that it it was a moment in time when these teams were useful. And at a certain point, they were going to evolve. And a lot of the roles were actually going to be reintegrated Mm. into existing teams. And what was going to remain would probably look and feel and deliver completely different things. Hmm. Really fascinating. So talking about managed chaos, let's talk a little bit about the BBC, um, or maybe actually creative innovation, depending on sort of, I guess, where you sit and sort of, um, you'll talk a little bit about that now. But in, in, in 2012, you become head of digital marketing transformation at the BBC. Why did the BBC need a head of digital transformation at that time? Mm, okay, well, that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, it, so it dep- depending on where you sit, they may have said they didn't need it or they desperately needed it. And and that's kind of the answer in a way is that um, in 2012, I mean, the BBC was unbelievably successful in terms of of being a digital brand and a digital innovator and a digital leader. They had just delivered, uh, you know, in 2012, uh, BBC delivered the Olympics. If you recall, that was really groundbreaking in terms of how much content they were able to deliver online. Spectacularly groundbreaking. And and by the way, compared to the Beijing Olympics of 2008, everyone was wondering what is London and the BBC going to do in response? And it was just so magnificently executed and the way the BBC covered it was phenomenal. Yeah, it it was really a high point. And I would say that coming in at that time, um, there was something wonderful about it because people were still very much buzzing. I, I joined in September of 2012, so mm. immediately after that, and there was a real lovely buzz mm. uh, going on at that time off the back of how successful they felt they had been. Um, but what was happening sort of it, it, under the hood was very different in a way, which is that um, there was an incredibly strong um world leading uh um silo of digital skills at the bbc and then the rest of the organization was operating as it always had so you had the um the teams that could deliver things like the the digital olympics right or who had launched iplayer iplayer was i think that you're voted like 
I don't know if you remember, there was the Cool Brands Index. I think it had right. one like number, you know, the cool brand of the year. Um, <laughs> iPlayer was massive and it was yeah. very innovative. You you think at that time Netflix hadn't really landed in the sure. UK yet. We weren't, there was no other streaming sure. competitors. You know, I mean, it was very, very hot. Ahead of its time. Yeah, but it was all sat in a kind of a, a almost a, um, it, it was being held tightly in a in a section of the BBC, and the rest of it, the rest of the BBC felt like it was stagnating, and so I was brought in to work specifically with the marketing department. So um, I ended up uh, working under the the chief marketing officer um, Philip Almond, who was new at that time, and the uh, marketing team at the BBC did not feel like they were digital world leaders in any way, shape, or form because they were working very separately from the digital teams within the BBC. So the biggest, Hmm. you know, the biggest issue was really the silos, Hmm. the silos that were existing there. And um, part of the, uh, part of the other challenge that the BBC had is that it had actually gone through that period, um, like I was describing in Amnesty, where there had been this absolute, you know, bursting kind of um, uh, explosion of websites and blogs and activities sure. and content and everything else. Sure. Um, and I think they called it the, the, you know, letting a thousand flowers bloom phase, um, mm-hmm. where a lot, there was a lot of digital activity happening all over the organization before I joined. And just before I joined, they'd come in with a new strategy that was um, called the 10 product strategy. And it was really about consolidating what the BBC did online. It said, we only have 10 products. Everything that we work on is going to be sit under one of these 10 digital products. They're going to be, it's going to be managed by product teams and product owners. And we are going to stop everything that doesn't fall into this strategy. So they had really like pulled the rug out of a lot of the um, the, the, the blossoming and kind of uh, cacophony of digital activity that been ha- had been happening previously. It was a phase that they definitely had to go through in order to kind of c- clean up and, and make it a bit make a bit more sense what they were doing, but it was also a period of time it, where it was starting to feel stifling to anyone who wasn't sitting within those ten products, and the marketing department um, were were sort of they were desperate to innovate on digital channels and to do interesting things and to work in collaboration with other parts of hmm. uh, you know the, the digital teams and that kind of collaboration and those kinds of relationships were, were not existing very well at that point in time and hmm. essentially that is why they needed somebody to come in and figure out what they were going to do so quite a small job then um <laughs> <laughs> so how do you bridge that gap how do you bring those silos together you got the digital guys in one area of the of the organization that are very forward-looking and innovative you got creative storytellers and the marketing guys who um you know obviously want to be part of the team and want and have value to add and, and are amazing storytellers in, the, in their own right those two segments, those two silos need to be on the same team and need to be singing from the same hymn sheet. How do you bring silos together um, in a large, complex organization? Mm. Well, um, it, it was, oh, it was easy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. Um, next. No. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I haven't even mentioned the fact that all of this happened during the the the, the horrific Jimmy Savile scandal, and we lost a director sure. general, and there was a lot of other stuff going on. So it, it was it was actually, you know, as I said, that there was this buzz, this high after the 2012 Olympics, and then right. there was this very short period of time, you know, maybe a hundred days, fifty days, something like that, where things were just like, oh, right. this is great, the future is ours, yeah. and then everything just sort of blew up. Oh, and, um, yeah. yeah, but but actually, to be fair, the the Jimmy Savile scandal hit when I was about I don't know a few weeks, maybe a month into my role, and um, immediately 
I could read the writing on the wall that there was no way that I was going to be able to do anything that was going to be big and um, groundbreaking and really high profile because nobody, when things like that are happening, nobody has the the will or the energy, you know, or or the the inclination to kind of focus on anything else. So I figured I have to find the spaces that are, where the territory is going to be rich during something like that, that, that I can work with. Um, and I just need to rethink what I can do, you, you know, where are the opportunities? And what I realized that there were a lot of opportunities during that time that were around working with the people rather than the technology, rather than some of the processes, rather than the big systemic things that were going to be off limits until mm. the, the BBC was kind of, the ship was studied and working with the people was great because they were then desperate to do things mm. um, that made themselves feel, you know, that were engaging and that were developing themselves because they were also feeling quite disconcerted by what was going on. So the program I ended up um, uh, proposing was very much around supporting the, the marketers to help them either build up their skills or build up their confidence or to be a kind of a, a, a working partner with them in order to help them become better digital marketers as marketers. Um, and we did a lot of, we brought Sounds in a very lot of, meta. Yeah, it was. <laughs> what I mean by that, though, is that I, you know, I didn't come in and say, okay, we need these new roles and we need these new, you know, we need to restructure. We need, I mean, no, nobody was going to be, buying into that at that time mm. but if we said well your existing teams we can build up the 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 capabilities of your existing teams and we can get them more confident with digital um and we can retrain we can provide training if they need it we can provide inf- inspiration we can provide support or coaching no one was going to say no to that at that time um and the um so a lot of it was just around working with the existing teams and Mm. building up capability there what was very interesting nathan is that a lot of the existing teams actually had really good um understanding of of digital so we weren't talking about marketing teams who were uh you, you know who had who really needed a lot of support what they didn't have, though, was um, sometimes they didn't have the confidence and sometimes they didn't have the energy because they were having to go through so many barriers uh, in order to do what they wanted to do. So, and, and sometimes it was just about the fact that they were worried about kind of, you know, putting their heads above the parapet and saying, sure. I'm going to do something different because if it didn't work, they were worried at a time when things were quite stressful that they were right. going to have to take a lot of the blame. So, um, so I sort of set up this program that was uh, we I, we ended up calling it the digital market marketing lab. But I think you know, in retrospect, I don't think lab was really the right word for it. But the idea was that um, I worked with a team of uh, consultants um, as well as had uh, some agencies that we worked with, some you know advisors, whatever who we could bring in, some other suppliers who we could work with, and we would be there as a kind of an internal resource for marketers to um, advise them or support them or to back them up on what they wanted to do and to kind of help them inject some, uh, to integrate digital into their marketing plans, so to speak. And the deal was that um, we would be, we would, cover for them so to speak so Mm -hmm. if they needed to kind of push through corporate barriers or anything like that we would help them do that and um if we and if things messed up we would take the blame and if it was very successful they could take all the kudos um so they were quite incentivized to work with us sure. I gave them I gave them a win-win kind of <laughs> deal. But the other thing was that I, I was able to convince a, a lot of senior people at the BBC to sort of trust me that I was gonna do it um uh reasonably and sensibly and that I wasn't gonna kind of get anyone in trouble and that we weren't gonna mm. be breaking any 
editorial policies or anything like that. It was just that, mm. uh, you know, there were, that I was going to help them do things differently. And the problem with a lot of big, complex corporate organizations is that people don't do things differently because it just takes so much extra effort. And it's not that the barriers are policy ones or regulatory ones or legalistic ones. Sometimes the barriers are just that the as soon as you go off the well-trodden path, it means extra work sure. and you already have enough work on your plate. Sure, right? sure. So you sort of, you need a bit of a crutch to get you through that. And, yeah. you know, we were, we were that crutch. The other thing is though, that as I mentioned, there were some brilliant digital marketers in the marketing team. So we had uh, um, Lindsay Nuttall joined the same time as me and she had just come from ASOS. She was fantastic. Um, Ian Sawbridge, who later went on to work for, I think he later went on to be chief marketing officer at Bino. Again, absolutely fantastic digital marketer. Uh, but again, they were feeling quite held back by the fact that digital really felt owned by another team. And the second that anybody in marketing tried to say, can we use the, the website for this? Can we, um, can we, um, uh, you know, can we start thinking about partners that we can work with or anything else? Um, the they were facing a lot of challenges mm. because they didn't necessarily have access to BBC's digital products or digital properties, um, but also they were facing challenges because reputationally, um, marketing was seen as a non-digital department. So there was a real interesting dynamic between the digital teams and the marketing teams in that the digital teams felt that they owned the BBC's digital future and that anyone outside of their team was uh, not almost like not going to be part of the future in a weird way. And they didn't necessarily recognize the skills that were sitting in front of them in some of these teams. And by not recognizing in them and not working in partnership with them, they were actually, I believe stopping the BBC from going on its next step of digital maturity, that it was starting mm. to stagnate because at a certain point you need digital capability to be sitting everywhere in the organization, not just in your kind of digital team. If it just sits in your digital team, what is the rest of the business for? Mm. Um, and the, and so the, these poor, Sorry, I shouldn't say poor, but these like these brilliant, brilliant, talented digital marketers who are sitting in marketing were kind of cut off from the beating heart of the digital future of the BBC, and they needed to be integrated mm. back into that, and they needed to be able to work in collaboration and figure out what what was going to happen next. And I think you know a lot of my role was just trying to work out, trying to bridge those gaps, and trying to work out how we could start to see each other as partners in developing that future rather than kind of uh, um, adversaries or adversarial. Yeah. Yeah. To that point, you, you see much more of an integrator and developer of people, much more sort of uh, sort of working with people to facilitate win-wins than, um, than the other way around. I guess you'd learn from your Amnesty International experience. Yeah. <laughs> My way or the highway, guys. <laughs> I think the BBC, the BBC was probably the first time that where I, where my role was had moved uh, moved away from the the you know the technology and um, and really thinking about operationally what needed to happen and sure. worked much more with people and behavior and culture and sure. creating that culture change and building the right kind of collaborations within an organization, working through mm. the tough organizational behavior barriers to digital transformation. And I think from there, my career really took a change. Mm. I, I've seen a couple of your talks on YouTube, very engaging, Eva, very personable. You're very charismatic. You you talk a lot about a responsible digital strategy and ethical digital strategy. What does that mean? Ah, another small question for me. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, I guess, I, I guess in a way to answer this, I'm going to jump forward a bit in that it's really where my head is today. 
Um, and maybe even eight years ago, my head wasn't there so much. It was there a bit, but it, it wasn't there so much. I think in the last, say, you know, even say five years, six, uh, six years, four years, uh, what we've really started to see is that if we just allow digital technologies uh, or any kind of innovative or, or new disruptive technologies, if we just allow them to evolve without taking a step back and thinking about what we actually want in the future from them, I think we can make a lot of very big mistakes that are going to have huge reverberations within society. And we... What do you mean by that? So I think about the, um, you know, we are seeing that in terms of what's happened on social media, what's happened with privacy, what happens with things like facial recognition and so mm -hmm. forth, that um, we... We've seen we've seen the result of technology being invented without any kind of an ethical or moral framework huh. applied to it, and I think we've reached the end of the road for that to be able to happen. And I uh, to to make it clear, what I mean is that um, if you think about um, uh, medical research, for example. Uh, you know, everyone has to take a Hippocratic oath. Everyone has to say, you know, we, we ultimately we're not going to do any harm and this is the way we're going to do research and there's certain things that we will not do. Um, and whilst for sure we could probably get to solutions or cures in medicine quicker if we, you know, um, didn't adhere to those, those kinds of values. Uh, we as society, you know, as humanity, oh. thousands of years ago, even we've decided that's not the way that we want to operate. And I think in the early days of the internet, and I was around in those early days, it was so exciting. It was so exciting what was going to happen, the potential of it. We're all going to get together. We're going to solve societal problems. We're going to communities, et cetera, et cetera. And as it evolved, we realized that, yes, but you also get trolling and you also get, yeah. you know, um, a digital bullying and you get, you know, um, there's, a, there's a myriad of harms that come with that as well. But and the pushback it, to know, that, the, Eva... The pushback to mm -hmm. that would be it's very hard to foresee the second and third order effects of technology. The intention at the beginning when you're rolling out a piece of tech generally, I'm sure, is, is benevolent and it's yeah. well-meaning. Yeah. But how people interpret that and how people use that in their day-to-day -day life, it, it goes back to what we were saying about life imitating art or art imitating life. It's like the second and third order effects are very hard to foresee and that's where the damage is done. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that what what hasn't become part of the practice or what's only now becoming part of the practice is including reflection on that as you're developing them, right, or as you're working on them. And so... Um, if you, so for example, I did work a number of years ago with um, uh, the organization Dot Everyone who folded uh, uh, earlier this year. Uh, they came up with this uh, framework for considering the unintended consequences of new technology or new features mm. within your technology. Um, this is one thing that could become common practice within any development team, within any product team. Um, there are a lot of, uh, there's huge amount, there's like a, an explosion now of work around um, digital ethical codes or, you know, data, data mm. ethical codes, et cetera. And I think that it's just that the, the industry is moving into its next phase of maturity where it has to understand that it cannot operate entirely without regulation. There needs to be some kind of regulation there mm. um, because really there's no industry that's not regulated and mm. there's nothing, you know, regulation is, we so we don't like it as innovators, of course, but we can also see why it's necessary in, in order to keep uh, a, a civil society in a way in order to keep mm. kind of public good, you know, maintain public good. Um, but also in terms of our own practice, uh, working in innovative digital uh, 
you know, I mean, not me personally anymore, but uh, people who do, who do, who are at the sharp end of innovation, you know, introducing some codes of practice and professional codes to say, you know, this is how we consider unintended consequences. These are some frameworks or some, some, um, scenarios or some kind of, mm. um, uh, you know, role playing almost that mm-hmm. we do in order to see if there's anything that we're not, that not everything will be foreseen, as you said, but some things could be anticipated that is not, mm. you know, whether or not. Because, and the other thing I would say, Nathan, is that a lot of this for me comes also from the fact that we do not have diversity yeah. in these areas, right? And That's what I was going to say. Yeah. In, Invisible Women, there's a great book exactly. called Invisible Women oh, that talks that about, yeah. fantastic book, yeah. how a lot of the tech that's being developed is by white, middle-aged, yeah. you know, middle-class men. And how can you foresee how other diverse sections of our society are going to be interacting yeah. and using technology yeah. if you're not part of it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And for me, that talk, I mean, for me, this diversity is the biggest uh is almost the biggest solution to it because the more perspectives that you get the more that you can anticipate some other problems and that's why when you you said before i'm more of a uh, what do you call me a people integrator okay i loved it i'm gonna i'm gonna use that next time when somebody says what is it that you do i'm gonna say well Nathan says i'm a people integrator I'm an integrator of people, <laughs> integrator of people. <laughs> but but how do you do this for a living but for me, that that is that is the answer, and that is why when I go into organizations, whether they're my clients or whether they're when I've worked at places at the BBC, I am most interested in getting the people who are the furthest away from the digital innovation or the innovation, listening to them, hearing their perspectives, and bringing them into the conversations. Because if for example, we can get more women working in tech or working in data, but if they're all still young middle class women sure. who think the same way, you know, you you, you get a slightly better yeah. version maybe, but it's still the same. If you get sure. 80, 80 year olds to come in and talk about what mm. they think about data, I mean, whoa, you're going to get a completely different perspective. Sure. And I I do really rile against, I, I push back a lot against the um, the attitude that you get from some people who work in tech or who work in digital innovation who are, you know, like everything that happened before the internet is, is rubbish and, mm. you know, and, and like it's the young versus the old. Mm. I think as societies, mm. there are going to we are all going to have to live in this future together and we're going to need a lot of different perspectives to do it. And we really do need to bridge, you know, you talk about that digital divide for me, that's a huge part of it is how do we get voices into these conversations that are really far away from them now so that we can think about what the impact of some of the things that we're doing now are going to have on people who would normally not be involved or not be um considered yeah i could speak to you all day about this but uh we're sadly running out of time and your head <laughs> trimmer is going to be turned back on soon so so let's get into everyone's favorite questions these are the questions that i ask all of my guests so i'm really excited to ask you some of them as well a little bit more personal questions i.e you know who is the person behind the brand sort of questions oh, <laughs> Don't don't panic. Uh, let's start with the favorite one, the first one. Uh, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned about the experience. So. Oh. It's a big sigh. <laughs> I mean, uh, so, okay. It's a hard one to answer, isn't it? Because, not, not because I can't think of, not because I haven't failed, but because it's like, I just feel like I've failed so many times. Yeah, I don't like, which one do we pick? Right. Yeah. Um, I have been, um, I have, you know, I've been, I've set up a business that didn't work. Um, and it was really, really, really difficult because I felt I took it, you know, I'm sure as everyone does the first time that this mm-hmm. happens, uh, I took it very personally and I took it very much as a reflection on myself and my own professional reputation and my own skills and everything else. But 
you know, it's so cliched, but interestingly, you know, as time goes on, you really do realize that saying that you almost have to have a failed business behind you in order mm. to, to have that perspective to be able to, to think clearly in the future. And you learn so much from it, right? You learn mm. all the mistakes that you made, everything you would do differently the next time, mm-hmm. but also you learn about yourself, like what you really like and what you really don't like what you're good at what you're not good at you know and what skills you've acquired um i worked with a lovely uh woman who does leadership mentoring and she made me go through this exercise this is sally henderson i'm going to give you a name check sally because you're henderson i've interviewed her i was talking to her we Um, are besties ah she is we are literally she is fantastic she is brilliant she got me to do this exercise about um Break up, break up letters and love letters to your okay. to your business and to all the people that you worked with with, with it, and it was oh. so cathartic. Uh, mm. So there you go, Sally Henderson. Shout out mm. to her. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it 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 was it, it. I think that it. I think that in a short amount of time, I the maturity that I gained was you know hugely uh profound whereas years of working you know i could talk about five years at the bbc or mercer's or whatever and i i wouldn't have learned as much as i did in a short amount of time of something really fascinating yeah yeah absolutely fascinating we've we've talked about invisible women we've geeked out about that a little bit we both read it (laughs) Tell tell us about some of your other favorite books fiction non-fiction whatever Oh, uh, well, Nathan, you know, I, I was sat there like, earlier this morning, you told me you were going to ask me this question. I'm sitting there <laughs> looking at like the thousands of books I have oh, in I my house. And, how on earth am I going to pick one? But um, so I thought that I would give you kind of uh, three different genres. Okay. Um, okay so the first is um, that I have been, I, I started to read a number of years ago, I started to read the um, Hannah Arendt. If you know who she is. The who, the who, the who now? So What's her name? Hannah Arendt. It's A-R-E-N-D-T. And she wrote, after the Second World War, she wrote about the rise of totalitarianism. Huh. And the reason I started to read her, well, you can just imagine what kind of politics right. going, the yeah. way that they happen, um, is I, I suddenly, I think, I grew up in a very optimistic time and I think I, and I am an optimist. I'm absolutely an optimist in terms of the, I believe in humans. I believe in our future. I believe that everything's going to be absolutely fine, you know, but it was, I, I had this first moment where I thought, well, but how do we as humans like take the wrong path? Like how does that mm. actually happen? Because maybe it isn't something that could only happen in the past. Maybe it is mm. something that could happen in the future. So Slavery, she, the Holocaust, yeah, go down yeah, the list. Exactly, exactly. So is it possible that we could fall into that trap again? So mm. she has a, a tome. I mean, it, I will not recommend people read it because it is probably <laughs> the densest thing I've ever had to read. And the only way I could really? read it was to go on an absolute digital detox, turn off my phone, lock it away for weeks and like just try and read this thing. And I still only got partway through it, but the origins of totalitarianism. And I would say that I would urge people today, you don't have to read that, but I would urge them to reflect on how we could end up following into these traps again and what, so that we train ourselves or we kind of keep ourselves aware of what to look for and how to make sure it doesn't happen. Fascinating. That's, that's the first one. Harriet uh, Ardent. Uh, Hannah. Hannah. Hannah, sorry. Yeah. So it's A R E N D T. She uh, was a, a Jewish woman from Germany um, and, and wrote this after the Second World War. Okay, added to um, my list. There you Thank go. You. But, you know, maybe get the, the what do you call it? The, the, the cliff notes. Yeah, the cliff <laughs> I'll read an essay of someone explaining it. (laughs) YouTube video, I think. Yeah. Then the second one I was going to say. um, So I I would have actually said um, the uh, the Invisible Women. I think it's just absolutely brilliant. But I'm going to say say another one then, which is: um, uh, Have you come across Yaron Lanier? And I'm probably not saying his name right either. So apologize. Uh, It's J A R O N. 
L-A-N-I-E-R. I-E-R. No, I haven't. Okay, so he is um, really interesting. You know, someone who I think he, he would be named as the inventor of virtual reality. He's been working on really the, the cutting edge of, of tech innovation for decades um, and very much an insider in this world. Um, you know, early, early, early uh, digital and sort of web guru. Oh, I hate that word guru, though. So sorry. Apologies <laughs> that I said it. Um, right. But he wrote a book, um, I would say this is going back to maybe 2009, 2010, called You Are Not a Gadget. And it, it was a kind of a polemic about the potential uh, harms of social media and the internet as someone who was passionately in love with the internet. Mm. And it mm. was the first time that I started to realize that there could be a downside um, and I had, you know, just been at Amnesty and was really convinced that all we, you know, all we needed was social media in mm. these worlds that had um, dictators and human rights yeah. abuses, and we were going to brought into the light yeah, and exactly. have democracy and freedom and exactly. liberty for all. Exactly, right? and I was still very much convinced that it was only a force for good. And it was when I read that book, it it really changed the way I started to think about it and thought, you know what, he's, there are things he's saying in there that I really agree with. And we do have to, we do need to reflect on this. Um, so I recommend he's written a number of books since then, but you were, mm. you were not a gadget was the you one. Not that, a gadget. Yeah. But anything he's written since even, I would say to, to have a look at, cause he's, or yeah. even just his essays, really interesting things. Yeah. Um, and That's then, amazing. <laughs> and yeah. then the the last one is because we <laughs> we had a long conversation about this uh, recently. But I actually really like classics. Um, okay. And I've read uh, over the years. I've read, you know, the big, heavy kind of um, Tale of Two Cities and right. War and Peace and sure. um, wow. whatever, you know. And um, those the heavy. Yeah, the heavy, heavy ones. But what I would say is that. Um, so I'm going to choose. I'm actually going to choose um, War and Peace, okay. and uh, the reason why I'm going going to choose it is because um, it. I think that we are losing, or at least I am losing the skill of being able to sit down and read something for a very long period of time. So my own brain has changed mm. so much that I don't have the attention span to do it. But, really? Yep. But in my life, I was able to sit down and read that whole big long book. Mm. Um, the other reason why, though, I really, I, I would recommend it, or it's, you know, on my list is that I absolutely love reading historical novels that remind me of how little people actually change and um i think in a yeah in a world in professions where we spend so much time talking about how much things change and how fast you know it's like things have to change fast and you have to adapt and blah 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 that Mm. actually there's so much stability in humanity that we forget about and we Mm. forget that um that you know that things are they're sort of fundamentals that are the same you know Mm. and often what we think of as new or just it's just the old thing being repurposed in a slightly different way Mm. and so I love looking for those kind of patterns in the way we think and the way we feel and our emotions because I think that they're so unchanging not just over decades or hundreds hundreds of years but over millennia Mm. and in fact you can go back and read like you know the odyssey even or mm. or um, mm. Marcus Aurelius yeah, meditations stoicism. Yeah. I mean, Gilgamesh, whatever, and and you will see that there's still people yeah. who love. They cry. Yeah. They lose. Yeah. They jealousy, burn, anger, they're jealous, they're anger uh, Every complex human emotion. It's just the same old thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over and over again yeah. for, for millennia. Yeah. And I find it. I just. I find it so reassuring, and so there's something so grounding about that that. Um, that I would just say, I, any classic, basically, any go mm. and read histor- something from history and remind yourself that people are wonderful and insane and insane, and we, mm. we don't change. And I love it. Really fascinating. Mm. What What's two more questions about about books? Because I can tell you're fascinated, just just as, just as I am actually. What's your which book do you go back to time and time again? Oh, God. 
I, you know, I don't, I don't think I've done that in a while. Oh, really? I don't think I've done that. Like reread books? Yeah, I mean, used to loads, but I think there is something too about the stage of life where I'm at, where I've got kids in school and stuff, where I think that that's a habit that you let go of, and I hope I come back to it. I, I mm. was definitely, I was a child who read, you know, if you were to ask me for more books, I could go back to like <laughs> Judy Bloom. <laughs> wow. that I read thousands yeah. of times over and over Amazing. again. Yeah. But um, I can't answer that. I can't. Okay. What's your what's your buy to read ratio? <laughs> do you do you oh. buy a lot of books and how many of them do you actually read? Oh, I am is terrible. I am terrible at that right now. Yeah. I'm terrible because also because everyone says, uh, you know, have you read this one and about like strategy or something? And I'll I'll pick it up <laughs> then. Actually, one that I've read one that so funny enough one that I have read a number of times recently. Yeah. It's not that I'm saying that this is my favorite book or anything, because you'll think I'm such a nerd, but it was Good Strategy, Bad Strategy. Okay. Um, just because I think there's so many really good uh, um, reflections in there. And I, I thought it was just an uh, mm. unbelievably helpful book to sort of help you think about how what is strategy and how you actually think about it. Um, and so I, ironically, I've read that one a lot recently, okay. but yeah. I wish I could say something very beautiful, like a, a, a wonderful poet or something like that, but no, it's good strategy. <laughs> <bad> strategy. <laughs> it, I'm sure it's poetic in its own right. I, I got the audio book. Um, last, last couple of questions and then I'll, I'll let you go. When I'm going through difficult patches, I remind myself of inspirational quotes from people that I admire to get me through like Viktor Frankl's From Stimulus to Response, there's choice from the magic of big thinking, how big we think determines the size of our accomplishments or action cures fear. Do you have any of those things that you fall back on in tough times? I have a thought. It's not so much a quote because I don't know exactly where it's come from, but it's something that somebody told me once that I, I go back to quite a lot, which is that, um, you know, if you've a problem is something that you can solve, right? And if it's a problem, get on and try and figure out what you're going to do about it. But if there's nothing you can do about it, you just it's just about figuring out how you're going to accept it or how you're going to live with it. Mm. And the serenity prayer. Is that what it is? I don't know. <laughs> a well, friend, a friend sort of said it to me once and it stuck with me. Yeah. But I don't know where it came from. So well, I guess it came from the serenity prayer, which which says, you know, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot mm. change, to the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Mm. There you go. It was a paraphrasing of that. Yeah. But and it's so powerful. That is such, I, I'd love to get that tattooed on my chest or something. <laughs> because it's so, you know, I have, I struggle with that so much. It's like, there's so many things that are wrong with the world yeah. and things that I think that I want to, I want to change, need to change, but I have absolutely no control or power over them. So just forget about them. If I can't control it, don't worry about it. And that kind of frees you up. But yeah. The things that you can control, do those. And it's yeah. just such a powerful... Yeah. And, um, and to be honest, it's something I use a lot in my professional practice when I'm working with clients, when I'm working with, uh, with partners. Um, because often, if you're, if you're a change agent within an organization, especially big, complex organizations, you are obsessed with all the things that need to happen um, and you want them to happen now, but a lot of them are just not going to be within your gift to make happen. And mm. I, uh, you know, I often spend a lot of time with people just helping them reframe that and figure out where they can do something and put the energy there rather than riling against, you know, like what's that expression, like screaming into the wind kind of the things that are just too big for you yourself to be able to change. And I think that change agents you know this is one of the things that we we this is what we need to work on the most because our energy is so profound when we use it in the right places but too often we're we're trying to bite off more than we can chew and we become ineffective in that absolutely love it last couple of questions okay. what advice would you give to a young person or millennial who comes to you and, and says that they want to start their career in digital transformation or become a change agent? Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> so I know. I have every one of you. Do I? Oh no! Well, I think you're such a good interviewer, Nathan. You really are. You're. You're. You should be. You should be. Once I should be an interviewer. Yeah, yeah. Once Radio Four should be knocking down your door. Right. Um, right. So I should answer my emails. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, okay. I don't know how I'm going to answer this. Actually, so I, I think there's a few things. First of all. Um, if you, you think about when we go back to like whenever it was five hours ago when we started this interview and you said, oh, your career is like all over the place. I think I would say to people. I didn't say that. <laughs> That's hard. That's hard. Yeah, it is kind of all over the place. <laughs> well, you know, it's been eclectic or the, the kind word was it used. I think I would say to people though that, you know, so much of what I'm doing now talking about the well, working with people on like future leadership and the future of work or whatever. So one of the big, things to contemplate now is that um, lifespan is increasing massively and they're talking about 100 year lives 110 year lives 120 year lives and I think that um, we're still thinking about careers as something that are linear and have a certain shape and have a certain kind of progression to them and so I think anybody who is uh, uh, at the beginning of their career I would actually start by helping them understand that their career will be, uh, um, you know, will have many acts to them. Mm. Right? And so, and that they don't necessarily have to, uh, you know, put all of their um, ambition and drive and everything in the first act, right? That they want to also think about stamina over a long period of time and what they want to you know the kind of life that creating a life that lets them evolve and adapt over time especially Mm -hmm. because we know that the world is you know the the key sort of skill to have in the future is the ability to adapt and evolve Mm -hmm. and to learn new things over time because that is going to be fundamental you know in this in this century so i would say I would say that's just the, the the baseline kind of advice is to think about your career maybe, you know, what are you going to do? Okay, that's what you want to do now at 25. You may want to do something completely different at 40, at 60, at 80, right? You're not going to rec- re- be retiring at 50, whatever, and then have 60 years retirement, right? So what's, what are all those, you know, you don't have to decide now what all their acts are going to be, but just imagine that they're going to be waves of career and you're going into the first one and there are going to be many of them. But the other thing I think for, if they specifically wanted to go into change and transformation, I guess um, I would say that really understanding and practicing kind of empathy for different points of view and that, um, you know, that acceptance of the things you can't change and the, what did you call me? Again, the in, integrator of people, you know, that those are the skills, <laughs> yeah. you know, mm. that those are the skills that are going to serve you really well, because those are the skills that are going to really help you make change happen, you know, that, that and so focusing on those answer. skills. Yeah. Mm. Great answer. And, and my final question, Eva, what do you know about digital transformation today that you wish you knew when you first started your career? Nathan, I didn't even know <laughs> it was a thing when I started my If I could just go back in time and sort of sit, sit myself down and say there will be a thing called, first of all, there will be a thing called digital because we didn't even use that word then and then there will be a thing called digital transformation. Um, that would be hilarious actually having that conversation. True, very good. It's, but, a, it's a silly question. Forget, forget <laughs> I asked it, Eva. No, I'm just going to end my interviewing career no. here. <laughs> But you know what is really good about that question? Actually, I'll say it is another brilliant question because um, what I think it is a good example of is the fact that um, careers are so changeable now, right? And I happen to be someone, so because I was, I started off in digital, which we used to call internet or the web or whatever the hell we called it back then, um, you know, we were, there was no path there was no road in front of us we were sort of building the road as it evolved right we were the first we were the pioneers walking down it so we didn't have role models of what where we could go or what our career could look like because literally there was no one 
older than us or no one sort of further along than us who are doing it. Um, and I think that that's a good reflection. You know, you go back to what you said before about what advice you would give to people if they were starting in their careers. It's a good reflection that probably there are a lot of careers out there that have not yet been, been invented that we will all be doing, you know, you as well, me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just just figuring out how you will not be a person who calcifies at any point in time, but somebody who will be always open to kind of challenging your own thinking, challenging your own assumptions, making sure that you're not clinging to kind of status quo when really you need to let go of it, that that's probably, that's probably the, the, what I would go back to the uh, decade and tell myself (laughs) if I had a time machine and could go back to Eva, I have really enjoyed this interview and speaking to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it was lovely. Thank you so much. I'm telling you, your, your, well, your future career, you know, interview, <laughs> interview of AI. Or interview, right. your, your, it, it's absolute pleasure speaking to you, Nathan. I love it. Anytime. We have been speaking with Eva Applebaum. She is a leadership strategy and change specialist for the digital era. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to other guests discussing all things innovation and digital transformation. Thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on LinkedIn and email. Write to me at nathan.innovate.show. Please head over to iTunes and give us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Nathan Anibaba. We would be unable to do this show without our very own innovators. Ahmed Ahmed is our editor. Genevieve Mgeki is our booker slash project manager. Marion Begum is our head of research. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Dot Innovate.